Hi, everybody. My name is uh, Duncan Green. I'm from the Department of International Development here at the LSE. Uh, I also work for Oxfam. Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome two really outstanding speakers, as we can see from the people crammed into the room. Um, we're going to have today uh, a talk by Kate Rayworth and Oriana Bandera. Uh, just to sort of give you a brief, I won't do a full praise singing thing, but I'll give you a few brief points. So, Kate Rayworth is uh, an economist whose research focuses on the unique social and environmental and e ecological challenges of the 21st century. She's a senior visiting uh, research associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, a senior associate of the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, and most importantly, she used to work with me at Oxfam. Um, I used to work for him. He was my boss. It never felt like that for some reason. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, she, before she went to Oxfam, she worked at the United Nations Development Programme. So uh, and she is, according to The Guardian, no better source, one of the uh, top ten tweeters on economic transformation. Wow. Um, okay. Um, when Kate will get, speak for about 40 minutes, and we're then going to have a response from Oriana Bandera, from the, uh, uh, who is a professor of economics at the LSE, London School of Economics. Um, her primary research interests are in labor economics, development economics, and the economics of organizations. And just to make me feel even more inferior after Kate, she is the 2011 recipient of the Carlo Alberto Medal awarded biannually to an Italian economist under the age of 40 for outstanding research contributions to the field of economics. So we have some uh, impressive speakers. Um, now... We used to talk about where the toilets are. We now talk about the hashtag, but it's basically the same sort of thing. Uh, the, the hashtag for tonight is hashtag LSE Donut for those tweeters. But if you are tweeting, please turn your phone to silent. Okay, so we don't want lots of really embarrassing ringtones. Got it. Um, after Oriana's responded, and she and Kate are going to have a conversation, we'll then go and have a, uh, some questions from the audience. And then the really crucial bit, at least from Kate's point of view, there will be copies of her book on sale at the end, and she will sign them and chat to people. Um, and the book is Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Um, I'm going to stop now and hand over to Kate. Ladies and gentlemen, Kate Rayworth. Very nice to be here. I'm delighted to be here in the LSE, very tickled to be introduced my, my, by my former boss, um, and really honoured that Oriana is in the debate with me this evening. Let me click. Aha, there we go, it works. So, um, before I jump in, I want to figure out who's in the room. So, put up your hand if you've ever studied economics in any form. Okay, I was expecting that. Now put up your hand if you've never studied economics, you can't quite believe you've come to a lecture about economics. <laughs> Welcome! We're going to make it worth your while. Excellent. Okay, let me tell you why I'm here. I'm here because 25 years ago, um, as a teenager of the 1980s, I grew up seeing a hole in the ozone layer, a famine in Ethiopia, the Exxon Valdez spewing out oil into Alaska. And so by the time I was deciding what to do, I just knew one thing, which is I wanted to help change the world. Who doesn't? And so I thought the best way to equip myself to do that was to go to university and study the mother tongue of public policy, to study economics, and then I would be really useful at somewhere like Oxfam or Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace. So off I trotted, and I studied PPE, 
in Oxford for three years, and then I did economics for development for a fourth year. But I had brilliant teachers. But I'll be honest, I was frustrated and disappointed by the theories I was taught because I felt that they pushed... People are nodding already, I can see it. They, I felt they pushed the issues that I cared most about to the margins. I had to hunt them out in special options. And I found myself after four years walking away from economics because, to be quite frank, I was too embarrassed to introduce myself in the world as an economist. So I walked away and I immersed myself in real-world economic challenges. I worked for three years in the villages of Zanzibar with barefoot entrepreneurs. I worked for four years at the United Nations on the Human Development Report. I spent a decade, because I had fantastic colleagues there, with Oxfam. And through all of this, oh yeah, and I became a mother of twins to boot. So I realized through all of these experiences, all of which, of course, were economic, I realized the obvious, which is I couldn't walk away from economics because it frames the world we live in. And so I decided to start walking back towards economics, but to flip it on its head. And what if we could create an economics fit for the 21st century that actually starts with what we most value and then asks what kind of thinking would give us even a half a chance of achieving these values? And so in doing all this, I'm really inspired by the ideas of Buckminster Fuller, a great American inventor from the last century. And he said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And I'm a firm believer in that. Yes, you can change things by fighting reality, but not only that alone. Sometimes the best form of protest is to propose something new. And as he says, a new model. And in economics, often when we think of an economic model, we immediately think of something that's written in equations. But actually, I think models begin somewhere far, far more basic in pictures. I think pictures are incredibly powerful for portraying the world's most fundamental models. Copernicus certainly knew that. In the 1500s, he was watching the motion of the planets, and he knew that Ptolemy over here, who'd put Earth unmoving at the center of the universe, he knew that Ptolemy had it wrong. But Copernicus waited until he was on his deathbed before he dared to publish his own alternative picture. Because he knew the power of pictures. He knew that if he put the sun, not earth, at the center of the known universe, he was questioning papal power, challenging church authority, and upending man's place in the universe. So it's extraordinary what havoc a few concentric circles can unleash. <laughs> and I think we need our own Copernican revolution, not a reimagining and re-understanding of where we sit in the universe, something much closer to home, in what our well-being lies. And so I offer you, silly though it sounds, a donut. Now, the health warning, don't eat donuts. I know some of you might have cashed in on the 20% offer earlier this evening. Don't eat too many donuts because they're not actually good for you. This is the one donut that might actually turn out to be good for our health. So let me tell you, and I hope you've all got it in front of you. In the hole in the middle is a place where people are falling short on life's essentials, where people lack the food, health, education, access to energy, income, political voice, gender equality, those essentials to which every person has a claim to lead a life of dignity and opportunity and community. And I've crowdsourced those 12 dimensions from the Global Sustainable Development Goals. So you could say they're the most contemporary statement of the world's community of what is greed every human being has a claim to. So we want no one left in that hole in the middle. Get all out into that big green donut itself. Yet, and it's a big yet, 
we cannot overshoot the outside of this donut either. Because there we begin to put so much pressure on this extraordinary living planet that we begin to kick it out of kilter, causing climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, massive land use change. And these are the nine planetary boundaries drawn up in 2009 by Earth system scientists who said, look at the last 11,000 years of life on this planet. It's been unusually stable and benevolent to humanity. It's the most incredible home sweet home in which we've flourished. We'd be crazy to kick ourselves out of this state. And they believe that these nine planetary boundaries are, need to stay within the limits so that we don't push Earth into a far more hostile state. So looking at both sides at the same time, I, in the simplest terms I can, I say... This is a compass that invites us to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. And I believe this is our generational challenge. But if it's our compass for our century and our times, then you want to see the needle. And of course, that's on the back of the handout. It's not a pretty picture. Millions or billions of people worldwide fall short on life's most essential basics. 11% of people don't have access to enough food. That's why that little red wedge goes 11% of the way towards the center. On water, there's 9% of people have no access to clean water, and one person in three has no access to what we'd call a toilet. So on every one of these social dimensions, people worldwide, in countries rich and poor, are falling short. And yet, we've already overshot at least four of these planetary boundaries on climate change, Nitrogen and phosphorus loading, excessive use in fertilizers that leaches out into waterways and, and eutrophies them, kills off aquatic life. Land conversion, biodiversity loss. We don't even know where we are at the global scale on air pollution and chemical pollution. So this is the compass, the story of where we are at this moment, at the beginning of the 21st century. And I believe this is what our children's children will remember us for. Not for Trump, not for Brexit, but for this. Will we be the generation that begins to turn this story around? And that's, of course, the biggest question. Remember that economists from last century never saw this picture. This is our picture. Why on earth would we expect that their theories would have been developed to take this on? We need our new own theories, our own mindset, if we're going to step up to the challenge that's ours Many things in the world need to change, and I've been having fascinating conversations over the past five years since I first drew this when I was working at Oxfam. I've been talking with urban designers in Stockholm. They're using this diagram to imagine a new suburb of the city. In South Africa, they've used it to envision the future of the fastest-growing town in KwaZulu-Natal. I've worked with corporate leaders who are saying, what would it mean to be a company that, instead of profiting by pushing humanity out of this space, was actually helping bringing humanity in it? These are all fascinating conversations, but for me, this diagram brought me back to where I left off 25 years ago. It brought me back to economics, because my passion is the belief that we need a new economic mindset that's fit for our times, that's designed to tackle our own challenge that others before us never saw. And the reason I'm so passionate about that is because I believe that many of you sitting here will be the policymakers taking us through to 2050. In universities like this one, all over the world, there are students who will be the policymakers, the business leaders, the politicians, the journalists, the, the activists, the community leaders who guide us on this journey through this century. 
But I sincerely believe that the mindset that is being taught in economic universities worldwide is actually still based in the textbooks of 1950. And those, in turn, were drawn up on theories from 1850. And given the challenges of the 21st century, from climate change to extreme inequality to repeated financial crisis, this is shaping up to be a disaster. And today's students deserve a mindset fit for the challenges ahead. Of course, your students know it, which is why there's so much incredible student organizing from the Rethinking Economics movement internationally, saying we demand a syllabus that actually equips us to take on this challenge. Because these ideas, I think these are the core ideas at the heart of 20th century economics, and I'm going to talk you through each of them. I believe they encapsulate the essence of 20th century economics. And the little pictures, they're so powerful because they wordlessly slip into your mind and can sit in the back of your mind in your visual cortex for decades without ever you knowing they're there. They linger like graffiti on the mind long after the equations and the words have faded. And they shape the very fundamentals of the way we think about the economy, answering questions that, certainly in my education, never actually get explicitly answered. Questions like, what is the economy? And what is it for? And how does it work? And who are we? So I want to take you on a tour of these questions through the 20th century. And then, of course, because the best form of protest is to propose something new, I'm going to replace the old images with new ones. But we could have no better tour guide for this 20th century story than this gentleman. This is Paul Samuelson, and he was teaching at MIT in the 1940s. And Samuelson knew the power of the textbook and of the pictures. He said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its advanced treaties, so long as I can write its economics textbooks. Best bit's what he says next. The first lick is the privileged one, impinging on the beginner's tabula rasa at its most impressionable state. Yes, you see, Paul Samuelson thinks your mind is a blank slate, and he wants to lick it. <laughs> you laugh, but he has already licked it. Whether or not you've studied economics, because the diagrams Samuelson drew have shaped the way we all think about what the economy is. You see, in the 1940s, he was teaching engineering students at MIT. They just did a little bit of economics on the side. He happened to write the book that has been the mother textbook of all books since. So when Samuelson sat down to draw a picture of the economy, well, he made it easy for his students. He drew it looking like a radiator system. You can see water pumping in, flowing through these tanks between business, what he calls public, we'd call households. It's going round and round the pipes. It was a brilliant idea, and it captures the essential insight into the circular flow of income. So brilliant, in fact, the very next year, Bill Phillips, the New Zealand economist, came to the London School of Economics and said, I can build one of these. And he built this utterly brilliant moniac, this machine which was showing the pipes. In fact, it represents a slightly more complex version of Samuelson's diagram, more like this one that still is seen in economics textbooks today. Phillips's machine was probably the first working computer model. It was utterly brilliant, but it was also utterly flawed. And I'll tell you why. Because this diagram that it was essentially showing us, this is still the biggest picture of the economy and its actors that a mainstream macroeconomist can show you today. And of course, what it does is track the flows of money 
It's great for measuring national income. It's great for showing that circular flow. You can talk about Keynesian demand boost. But my goodness, the missing things, the blank spaces. Because it makes absolutely no mention of the living world, of all the materials and matter and energy drawn daily into the economy and spewed out as waste and pollution. And this is actually where Phillips got it wrong. Because to make the Moniac work, he had to go around the back of it and flip a switch to turn it on. It takes energy to make the economy work, but the energy wasn't part of that model. Nobody thought about the energy that was making the model work, and it's ever since just been left out. This diagram says nothing of the unpaid caring work of parents, the cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping, that what goes into reproducing labor to make it fresh and ready for work every day. Typically, of course, done by women, but done by parents for their children, but for our partners, for our own parents when they're old. And it says nothing of the commons, where people get together, not through the market, not through the state, but as a community, whether it's creating a, a garden on the corner of their neighborhood block or creating Wikipedia online. Well, if the best diagram that macroeconomists can still show us today of the macroeconomy says nothing of the living world, it says nothing of unpaid caring labor, it says nothing of the commons. It is missing three of the most fundamental and dynamic sources of our well-being. And those spaces, those blanks, will come back to bite us. What about who we are? Of course, this story goes back to Adam Smith. And Smith had a nuanced story because he recognized in his two books, The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that actually self-interest is powerful for making markets work but that our interest in others is essential for making society work. He celebrated our sense of generosity, public spirit, compassion. He said these are the traits most useful to society. But when later economists came along, like John Stuart Mill, Mill, for all his brilliance, he did a really unhelpful thing. He wanted to create a model of humanity that could be put at the heart of an economic model, and so he simplified. He said political economy does not treat the whole of man's nature nor the whole of his conduct in society. It sees him as a being who desires to possess wealth. And right there, he just plucked out this trait of self-interest and put that at the heart of the economic caricature. And that caricature was developed over the years to make it better and better fit into the economic model. Until today, we have a character that we would recognize as Rational economic man. Now, he never actually gets his portrait drawn in the textbook, so I decided to draw him. He'd be a man, standing alone, money in his hand, ego in his heart, a calculator in his head, and nature at his feet. He hates work, he loves luxury, and he knows the price of everything. And the real problem with this caricature is not just how absurdly narrow it is, the real problem, and the most fascinating thing I learned in researching for my book, is what looking at him does to all of us. Because on being told that he is like us, we actually become more like him. Research has shown that as economic students go from year one to year two to year three, the more they learn about this character, rational economic man, the more they say they value competition and self-interest, and the less value they give to altruism and collaboration. So, who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. What began as a model of man turns into a model for man. We're going to be more than 10 billion people on this planet this century. 
And if we continue to imagine and conduct and justify ourselves as rational economic man, I think we stand very, very little chance of thriving here together. What about the story of how the economy works? Well, this goes back to the 1870s when a small group of economists were desperate to make economics a science, as reputable as physics. And so they looked to the physics great of the day, Sir Isaac Newton. This is Newton's diagram of gravity pulling a ball to rest. And so when William Stanley Jevons began to draw his diagrams, he drew them in the style of Newton. Look, it, it looks like physics. It smells like physics. It must be physics. They spoke of the market mechanism, market forces, the laws of supply and demand. Newton found the laws of motion. We've got laws of supply and demand, the laws of diminishing marginal returns. You can hear it in the language, the evocation, that it's like physics. It must be a science now. And of course, this diagram, you may have not seen it in that form, but every student encounters it probably in their first lecture because this is one half of supply and demand. That fundamental of microeconomics that we still learn today, it was drawn out of a, an attempt to be like Newtonian physics. And as anyone who witnessed the 2008 financial crash knows, gravity is not a very good metaphor for how markets actually move when it matters. Because, because they said just as gravity pulls an object to rest, so prices pull markets into equilibrium. It doesn't work like that when it comes to markets that really matter. But the real problem with this the really pernicious effect of this desire to be like physics, this particular kind of physics, is that just as Newton had found the physical laws of motion, it set economists off in search of economic laws of motion. And once data began, be, started becoming available, economists were scrabbling to be the one to find that law. And I believe two such apparent laws have massively influenced all of our lives for decades. They look remarkably like each other. So the first one up here, this is the Kuznets curve. Income over time and what's happening to inequality. Simon Kuznets in 1955 got a bit of data on the UK, the US and Germany and he said, I think I see a pattern. That as economies get richer over time, first inequality increases, but then it decreases. And the next thing he said is, I wouldn't expect this. I'd expect the rich to get richer, not the poor to catch up. He tried to explain it. Perhaps it's something to do with rural to urban migration, for which he, he later admitted he had no grounds for that hypothesis. He was trying to make sense of the data. He also said, I have 5% empirical information, 95% speculation, and probably some wishful thinking. <laughs> and it would be terrible if this became an unwarranted dogmatic generalization. <laughs> Poor Simon. Because by the time somebody drew this curve, it slips into the back of our minds and then it whispers to us a, a silent mantra. If you care about inequality, don't try to redistribute. Growth will even things up. In 2014, Thomas Piketty's book came at the same subject with a lot more data and Piketty actually said, you know what, Kuznets' data was right. But he was measuring it at a particular moment in history, from pre-war to post-war. And war destroys the capital of the wealthy. And post-war, these governments invested massively in public services. So it was war and public investment that bent the curve down, not the inherent workings of the market. But the message still is whispered on through the mantra. And even the IMF lament today that policymakers seem not to be able to believe that there's not this tension between growth and redistribution. It's deeply embedded in the mindset. In the 1990s, along came another one. Looking so similar, they, they uh, creatively called it the environmental Kuznets curve. Based on local air and water pollution data, 
The economist said, we think we see a pattern that as economies get richer first, they get more polluted, but then the pollution goes down. The diagram again whispers a mantra. You care about the planet, you care about the environment, don't try to regulate. This will stop innovation. Growth, like a well-trained child, will clean up after itself. <laughs> Except when you take global data, from carbon emissions to material footprints, it doesn't bend down automatically. Growth does not clean up after itself. These are spurious laws of motion. We need to get away from the Newtonian physics because it's justified austerity economics and trickle-down theory. It's justified grow-now-clean-up-later economics, and these policies don't work. But it was a jolly good excuse all the while to pursue growth. And poor old Simon Kuznets comes back in the story here, because he was brilliant. Most of these guys were brilliant. It's just their ideas were an idea of the moment, and they gave us the caveats. The caveats fall away, and we're left with an overgeneralization. Kuznets was asked by the US Congress in 1930s to come up for the first time with a single measure of the national economy, and he did. National income, we now would call it GDP. And he said this could scarcely be taken as a measure of the welfare of a nation. Why? Because it doesn't measure the unpaid caring work of parents. It doesn't measure the value of goods and services created by the community. And it's just a flow. It tells you nothing of what's happening to the stocks from which that's generated. You see, he saw the whole story from the beginning. But those caveats were pushed aside because the temptation of a single number for a politician is too great. To measure year on year in the US and then the versus the USSR and you've got a horse race on. And by the 1960s, the OECD was publishing tables of each country's GDP growth rate. This becomes locked in, not just as a variable that's interesting and useful to measure, but as a policy target in itself. To the point that in 1960, W.W. Rostow wrote a book, which I love so much, I got a first edition. The Stages of Economic Growth, a Non-Communist Manifesto. <laughs> and Rostow likened the economic journey to an airplane ride. He said, first there's traditional society in which nothing very much is happening. Then you get the preconditions for takeoff, the beginning of a banking industry, mechanization of industry, and education for work. You get the beginning, then you get the, the conditions of takeoff itself where growth becomes the normal condition and the social, political, and economic institutions of society and even the values are changed to make it so. Then you get the march of compound interest bearing its blessings. Then we go through to the drive to maturity where you can have any industry you want. And fifth and final stage, the era of high mass consumption. Rostow knew that this couldn't quite be the end of the story because he acknowledges in his own pages. And then the question beyond, where history offers us only fragments what to do when the increase in real income itself loses its charm? He asked that question, but he never answered it, and I'll tell you why. The year was 1960. He was about to become an advisor to the presidential candidate, John F. Kennedy. And Kennedy was running for election on the promise of a 5% growth rate. So Rostow's job was to keep that plane flying in the sky, not to ask if, how, and when it could ever be allowed to land. So... I've given you a whirlwind tour of these 20th century diagrams. When I point out the caveats, the flawed assumptions, the gaps that even their creators told us and warned us about, it seems a flimsy set on which to build a mindset. But it's precisely in those gaps and blind spots and caveats that powerful stories can be built. And that's just what happened 70 years ago. 
A group of economists met in a little Swiss village called Mont Pelerin. Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and others. And they said, we're going to create a new economic narrative. They called it neoliberalism. Now, they were motivated by what they saw as the rise of the totalitarian state. And they had a fundamental belief that if you give the state an inch, it'll take a mile. In fact, it'll take the whole damn lot. So you have to minimize the role of the state in the economy. But their pushback against state totalitarianism very quickly morphed into a market fundamentalism, the idea that markets were going to be the first best solution. And they seeded that idea in the 1940s. They had to wait for decades. They seeded it in university posts, in think tanks, in political parties. By the 1980s, when Reagan and Thatcher elected, Reagan had 20 Montpellier Society members in his immediate presidential entourage. Thatcher's first Chancellor of the Exchequer, Geoffrey Howe, was a member of the Montpellier Society. Suddenly they had the international stage. And they put this story on the international stage. I believe it's the script that our economic lives have been run by ever since. And so we have the neoliberal story of economics, which stars the market because it's efficient, so we should give it free reign. It stars finance, which is infallible, so trust in its ways. It stars trade, which is win-win, so open your borders. And since every good story has a villain, it stars the state, which is incompetent, so don't let it meddle. These are the stars of the neoliberal story. Other actors not really needed on stage, but let's meet them anyway. The household, that's domestic, so we can leave it to the women. The commons, as you all know, the commons are tragic. The tragedy of the commons, so we should sell them off. Society, as Thatcher said, there is no such thing as society, so we can ignore that. Earth, Earth is said to be inexhaustible, so take all you want. And as for power... Now, economics, my first textbook was called Positive Economics. This is not a normative subject. This is objective science. So we don't need to talk about power in economics. We don't need to mention that. I believe this story has been leading our lives for decades. And, of course, you see the play on the stage, but behind the scenes, do we get to peek behind the scenes? There's a very different story going on. We see it sometimes in the newspaper headlines. It's a story of massive corporate funding of political parties, a story of massive state bailout of banks that aren't infallible but are too big to fail. It's a story of tax havens, tax havens and hidden receipts and a story of extraordinary inequalities between the CEO and the worker. And it's a story of massive levels of inequality in our societies and corporate lies about our impacts on the planet. I believe this story, the neoliberal script and what's really going on behind the scenes, has been leading us on this journey to the brink of collapse. You care about inequality? Don't try to redistribute that socialist. Growth will even things up. You care about the planet? Don't regulate because you're going to get in the way of innovation. Growth will clean things up. Except it won't and it doesn't. And we need a new economic story if we're going to take on this challenge of our times and actually leave a legacy worth being proud of to our children's children. So that's where I want to take you now. And of course, I believe a new story has to come with new pictures. So let's start from where I wish my own economics education started because I was never asked the first question, which is, what is the economy for? We never even talked about that. I believe the economy this century is for taking on this challenge to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. And we need the mindset that will equip us to succeed. 
What about the first diagram you would show students? As Paul Samuelson said, the first lick is the privileged one. Well, I wouldn't show them Samuelson's radiator system, and I certainly wouldn't start with supply and demand. That just says the economy is the market and the market's in equilibrium. That's two untruths in one sentence. It's not a good way to begin a degree. <laughs> I would start with this diagram, and I call it the embedded economy diagram. So what it's showing, the economy embedded in society, its social, cultural, political institutions, embedded in the living world, drawing in materials and matter, spewing out waste and pollution, bathed in a river of solar energy. So from day one, we can ask the fundamental question, how big can that material through flow of the economy be before we begin to disrupt the very living systems on which we depend? But also the economy itself is divided into four key provisioning sectors. It's not just the market and the state. You know, are you a, a laissez-faire free market capitalist or a state-loving socialist? That 20th century ideological boxing match has got in the way of us seeing two other fundamental sources of our daily provisioning. The household, where we all begin every day. And interestingly for students, students are plucked from the household and live in halls. It's at almost the hardest time in your life to appreciate the intensity of what the household does and the intensity of work that goes on there. But also the commons. Thanks to Eleanor Ostrom, the commons are resurgent and we realize that commons don't have to be tragic. In fact, they can be triumphant. And thanks to the digital commons, many of us now understand the incredible dynamism that can be created by people collaborating together for free online. Linux, the world's favorite operating system, was created through the free open source contributions of people online. So the household and the commons are incredibly dynamic and important parts of our provisioning. I wouldn't want to live in an economy that lacked any one of these four forms of provisioning because they're all essential and they actually work best when they work across the margins. A market commons enterprise, the state with the commons, the household with the market. But they're in the middle, the financial flows, drawn because they should be a service. Imagine that, financial services, in service to society. What would it look like to actually have a financial system that was designed to enable these other four forms of provisioning to work effectively, to meet our needs within the means of the planet? So for me, this is where I begin economics. And we can talk about power because it's all over this diagram. The market has colonized the commons, has actually colonized the household, and almost taken over the state for, for decades. And we need to rebalance. And the state has a key role in that rebalancing, such as creating legal recognition of Creative Commons licensing, so that ideas can be put in the commons and not captured as intellectual property by the market. So these are exciting times to be reimagining the relations and roles in the economy. What about who we are? Well, of course, we're far more interested than rational economic man. And this is one area where economics has been at work, coming up with this new portrait, and it can't come quick enough, because who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become every day. So, yes, we are self-interested. That's part of our nature, but we're also socially reciprocating in a give and take, and we punish others when they don't cooperate back. We don't have fixed preferences. We actually have fluid values, and I'll give you an example. If I issued a survey across this room right now about your values and preferences, but here the front page said consumer reaction study, and here it said citizen reaction study, and here it said community reaction study, the evidence shows that you'd actually fill it in differently because here I've activated consumer, 
here citizen, here community. And these values, when they come up in us, they change how we express, how we behave. So who we tell ourselves we are, even with a single word, changes how we then show up. We're not isolated but deeply interdependent. We can do amazing things when we work together that we could never do alone. We're not dominant over nature, but embedded in the cycles of life, this woman planting seeds to show our connection with the earth. And we're not actually work-hating. We're purpose-seeking. And those are the lucky ones for whom work and purpose come together. So we can't rewrite this portrait quickly enough. And it's beginning to come through. What about how it works? Forget Newtonian mechanics. It's the wrong kind of physics. And if you never got that joke about why did the chicken cross the road, the real punchline is because he wanted to teach you systems thinking. So here's the essence. Here's the essence of systems thinking. It's two feedback loops. Now, this is a reinforcing feedback loop. And the essence of reinforcing feedback is the more you have, the more you get. So the more eggs you have, the more chickens you get. And the more chickens you have, the more eggs you get. And anything in the world that you see that spirals up and up and up or down, 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 is dominated by reinforcing feedback. And over here we have balancing feedback, the essence of which the more you have, the less you get back. So the more chickens you have, the more try to cross the road, and the more try to cross the road. Sadly, the fewer make it back. And our bodies are dominated by balancing feedback. You know, when I talk about economics, I get excited. When I get excited, I get hot, and my body tries to sweat to cool me down. If I get cold, I shiver, and my body shakes to warm me up. So our bodies keep us at this incredible stable temperature through balancing feedback. In fact, most things that persist in the world don't reinforce, they don't explode or implode, they persist. And most of the interesting patterns in the world, from the dynamics of your family relationships to the boom and bust of stock markets to the rise of the 1% to the collapse of ecosystems, all these complex systems can be best understood through the lens of systems thinking. And during the financial crash, when the Queen asked, why did it, nobody see it coming? People went scrabbling to the work of Hyman Minsky, lost back in the 1970s. If you read the words of Hyman Minsky and his financial instability hypothesis, he is talking in the language of feedback loops. He was using systems thinking. So even for understanding financial crises, this is a smart mindset to begin with, which means for economists, a metaphorical career change. Let's not be like Charlie Chaplin reaching for levers on the control of the machine because it's not a mechanism. Here's Josephine Baker in her garden, watering plants, and I think the idea of being like gardeners and garden designers is a far more fitting metaphor for 21st century economics because a garden is organic, it's evolving, we don't control it, but we can steward it and shape it and design it to suit our purposes. And so for me, the big mindset leap at the heart of economics is to give up searching for these laws and to become instead designers. And then the question is, what kind of design principles do we want to put at the heart of the 21st century economy? If we're going to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet, I believe we need two principles, to be regenerative and distributive by design. And I'll say a little on each. Distributive by design, I mean that value shared should be shared far more equitably with all who helped to create it. The 20th century is obsessed with redistributing income. I think we need to go deeper and pre-distribute the sources of wealth creation. The most fundamental being our own health and education, the investment in every individual to enable us to reach our potential. But also the ownership of land and housing, 
the ownership of enterprise. Why shareholder ownership? We can have far more distributive ownership through employee-owned companies, through cooperatives. What about the ownership of money creation? Who has the power to create money? Is it the state? Is it commercial banks, the community? Therein lies a lot of power over that money creation. Ownership of energy, ownership of ideas. The most wonderful thing that's happening this century in terms of ownership of energy and ideas is if you look at today's energy and idea technologies, they look like this from space. They are distributed. The internet, dis renewable energy systems are distributed by design. So for the first time in human history, the technologies of energy and in ideas are on our side. They are distributed by design. Can we create economic institutions that can take advantage of that incredible opportunity? Can we create housing that's cooperatively owned and built by those who live in it? Can we create more companies that are owned by their employees who keep the value that they create? If being an economist means helping to come up with the regulation, the design, the frameworks, the incentives that can make this distributed design happen, well, now I really want to be one. What about regenerative by design? Here's, through the middle of this, is the degenerative linear 20th century economy where we would take Earth's materials, make them into stuff we want, use it for a while and throw it away. And that process, that take, make, use, lose, it cuts against the cycles of the living world. It's pushing us over planetary boundaries. So we need to bear, bend those arrows around. On the one side, biological, let's let nature do what she's done for 3.8 billion years and regenerated herself again and again from carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen. But the technical materials, anything from this clicker to this plastic bottle, any materials that we make ourselves should never be used up and thrown away, but always used again and again in a cyclical process. It's an economy that runs on sunlight, in which the waste from one process is food for another. The products are modular by design, so if this clicker breaks, I can take it apart, replace just the piece that's broken, and still use the rest. And I believe it needs to be open source. We can talk about that later if you want. Examples? Remember that one-third of people in the world who have no access to toilets? Well, some people now in the slums of Kenya do, because this wonderful uh, setup called Sanergy, the toilets, fresh-life toilets that they've put as franchises throughout the community, for the first time, people can actually use a clean, well-stocked toilet, have that dignified life. And the waste is collected every day and turned into organic fertilizer and applied back to the fields. It's so simple, it's closing the nitrogen cycle. We become participants in Earth cycles again. And of course, it means a far safer and healthier and more prosperous life in those communities. Over here, this is the open source vehicle. If you buy one, it arrives in a flat pack, IKEA style, a bit like this. If you know what you're doing, you can put it together in an hour. But if you don't know what you're doing, you can take it to somebody who does because the design is open source. It's free for anyone to see on the internet. So anybody anywhere in the world can become an assembler, a customizer, a repairer of this open source design. It's globally distributed manufacturing customization. It runs on sunlight, 100% electric and modular by design. This is the beginning of 21st century distributive manufacturing. And here is Houdini, a Swedish sportswear company. They use either tensile and wool as organic fibers, or they use recycled nylon, recycled polyester. They are attempting to create a cycle of the materials that they use in their company. Of course, no one company can do this alone. So they're among the forerunners. We need an ecosystem of resource use to make this work on the scale. If being an economist 
means coming up with the business models, the incentives, the understanding of circular design, the regulation that actually bring this about, I definitely want to be one now. So we need economies that are distributive and regenerative by design. But what does that mean for that aeroplane ride? Because Rosto's left us flying off into the sunset of mass consumerism. Happy Black Friday tomorrow, by the way, everybody. <laughs> we have economies that need to grow whether or not they make us thrive. They need to grow because we are financially, politically, and socially addicted to unending growth. Financially addicted because of the rate of return. The maximum rate of return is at the heart of that financial system that is in the centre of London. And because commercial banks create money as debt-bearing interest, it drives growth. We're politically addicted. No, no politician wants to lose their place in the G20 family photo. But, it, but if their nation stops growing while everybody else does, that, well, they'll be elbowed out by the next emerging powerhouse. So it's a political collective action problem. And we're socially addicted because after a century of consumerist propaganda, we have been persuaded that the best way to improve ourselves is to buy something more. I don't think any of these addictions are insurmountable, but they all require far more attention than they currently get. You see, this ever-rising line, there's nothing like that in nature. In nature, things grow from your children's feet to the Amazon forest. They grow, but then they grow up and they thrive. And they can thrive for a very, very long time. Why would we imagine that our economies could be the one system that beats this? Because we think growth is wonderful, but if I, if I told you my friend went to the doctor and the doctor said she had a growth, well, you'd be worried. You'd be worried for because we know that inside, a growth inside our bodies is a dangerous sign. When something grows unstoppably within a healthy living system, it destroys the host on which it depends. Do we really think we can create economies which will be the only system that bucks that trend? I think we need to create economies that enable us to thrive whether or not they grow. And this is the last idea I want to share with you. We need to get out of the aeroplane because aeroplanes aren't nimble. We need, we need a far better form of transport for the 20th century, and I know what it is. I'm going to tell you in a minute. So let's remember that GDP, it measures what goes through the market in the state. It doesn't measure the household. It doesn't measure the commons. So it's not measuring all our well-being. And we want to move to economies that are distributive by design and regenerative by design. So basically, everybody, we need to become kite surfers. <laughs> now, has anybody here ever done kite surfing? Uh, there's always one. There he is. So I haven't. You'll immediately see I haven't. But I, I've learned the basics. So here we are. Imagine the surfboard, right? I'm on the surfboard, and the surfboard is rolling over the ways of redistributive, the, the regenerative economy. I'm rolling over those cycles of the living world, moving towards a regenerative economy that works with and within the living world. But then overhead, I've got a kite pulled by the winds of distributive design. So I'm moving with the waves of regenerative design and pulled by the winds of distributive design. How do you move between those two? How do you work with those two forces? Well, in the middle, there's a little handle, isn't there? Yeah, he's nodding. There's a little handle. <laughs> and it goes up and down, and the, the surfer pulls it up and down to steer and work with the wind and the waves. And that little movement up and down, to me, I believe that is the future of GDP. It becomes a response variable that we allow to move up and down as we pursue something far bigger, 
regenerative and distributive design. I'll give you one example. The government of China is investing $360 billion in installing solar energy capacity. So that's a big upswing for the little handle. GDP goes up. But once it's in, the cost of generating electricity falls to near zero marginal cost. So GDP goes up and then down in response to installing a regenerative and distributive energy system. There are so many transformations underway. I believe we need to have economies that can be responsive in the value of GDP to make that far greater transition. I know that's a big mind flip, and I think it's our 21st century imaginative challenge. So let me finish with a new narrative of a story that I think is fit for our times. It's the 21st century economy. It stars Earth because she's life-giving, so we must respect her boundaries. It stars society because it's foundational, so we must nurture our connections. It stars the household because that's core. It's where we begin every day, so we must value its contribution. Yes, it stars the market because the market is incredibly powerful, and that's why we must embed it wisely. It stars the commons. They're extraordinarily creative, especially this century. How do we unleash their potential? And it stars the state because it is, of course, essential. How do we make it accountable? Finance, it's in service. Let's make it serve society. Business is incredibly innovative. How do we give it purpose beyond merely maximizing profits? Trade, it's double-edged. How do we make it fair? And as for power, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. We have to talk about it. And we have to check its abuse. I believe this is the beginning of a 21st century narrative of economics. And of course, it comes with pictures. And if you agree with me about the power of pictures, you might like these. I've had the honor of working with some of the world's best stop-motion animators to make a one-minute animation of each of the seven ways of thinking in my book. You can see that they're playful, they're silly, they're irreverent, which is precisely what I think we need to do. We need to take economics out of the equations and bring it back into our whole bodies, making ourselves laugh, making ourselves amazed, because everyone has a claim on understanding economics for the 21st century. Thank you very much. Thank you. So while Oriana wonders what earth she's walked into, um, she is going to follow that, right, Oriana? Um, so some slides and some conversation between you and Kate. Uh, Off you go. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's probably boring yeah. slide. It's going to get better, I hope. Um, so who am I? I did the BSc in economics. I started pretty much at the same time as Kate. I didn't stop there. Could you be nearer I, the mic? Um, yeah. I went... Um, does it work? Is that okay? Can you hear me? Okay. Kind of, so it's not working. Oh dear, I have to do the Madonna thing. <laughs> okay. So, better? Yes. Fantastic. So I was saying I started like Kate, but for a different reason. I confess I started because I was a math nerd and I didn't like physics. I started the BSc in economics more or less at the same time. I kept going. I did an MSc. I did a PhD. And then I stayed, I became a professor at the LSE, it rhymes. Now, that makes me probably the most unpopular person in this room, which is tragic, because I've never had such a big audience. 
<laughs> so, why am I here? You know, when I read Kate's book, I thought, this is amazing. But Kate should be talking to me because economists don't know how to communicate what they're doing. Maybe I should tell Kate what happened in those 25 years that she hadn't studied economics because a lot of stuff happened. But I could have done that with Kate. So I'm not here to tell her that. I'm here to tell you what happened to me when I was in Lusaka. Lusaka is the capital of Zambia. And that was seven years ago. Seven years ago, I happened to be in the Ministry of Health talking to the HR director of the Ministry of Health. Now, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, everywhere, there are very remote rural areas where no doctor wants to live. And so people don't have access to any health service. What that means is that silly things like uh, bleeding during giving birth, which would be fixed in no time here, can kill you. Can kill the mother and kill the baby. Maternal mortality is extremely, extremely high. And needlessly so, because we have the techniques to stop this. So Sub-Saharan Africa, Zambia, Lusaka, the ministry was really trying to do something. And that was their idea. Look, instead of trying to send people to these areas where they don't want to stay and we can't afford to pay the amount that they would like to stay there, why don't we take all these motivated community workers who are doing the job? That we did a census of health posts in rural areas, and you know who was the main person helping mothers to give birth? You'll never guess this, and so for, in the interest of time, I'll tell you. He was the janitor of the health post. The government had opened health post, the doctors ran away, the janitor stayed, and he was helping people without training to give birth. So the government thought, maybe that's what we should harness. We should harness the power of society. We take these people who are so motivated, we bring them to Lusaka, we give them some training because, you know, after all, a janitor is not trained to help at the health post, and then we send them back to their own community. But the problem that they faced was whether to incorporate these people in the career structure of the Ministry of Health, to make them become civil servant with promotion prospect, and with promotion comes more money and a lot of rights and a big title or whether to leave them as community health workers, just with the training. So that was the question that Ms. Mwila, the HR director, asked us. What will happen now that they see themselves as civil servant? Will they still retain that connection that makes them so motivated? So we decided to help them, and we ran an experiment. We recruited people in different districts with different motivations. There's 48 districts. We split them in half. 24 of them saw this poster. Okay, this poster has the same qualifications, the same application method, but really leverages the help to the community. It tries to attract people by saying, do you want to serve the community, become a community health worker? That's what the uh, thing stands for. In the other half of the district, we tried the career route. Do this job so you can build a career. And if you can read the benefits of there, it's all about becoming better, becoming bigger, becoming higher. And with higher position comes more money. Now, this experiment attracted very different people. And one of the two groups did a lot better. Mind you, this costs nothing, okay? A lot better. Institutional deliveries, women giving birth in the 
facility as opposed to home where they can die, 30% up. Children visits, 24% up. Polio vaccination, 20% up. The share of malnourished children in some districts, which got one of the two posters, fell by 25%. That's an enormous amount. These are real lives. And that's why I'm here, to talk about what economics can do to achieve these results. Can you guess which group did better? Who thinks that the career motivation, grow, make money, did better? Okay. Who think the community motivation made better? All right. Pretty. I think community wins. Always does. Why? What do we have in our mind? We have the little man that Kate put before with a big heart inside. And the heart can be empty or full. Some are more motivated to help the community, some are less. Social motivation goes that way. What we fear is that the moment we give people money, that motivation is crowded out. You attract people who do it for the money. If you pay people little, you attract the big-hearted people. The moment you start paying them a lot, you attract the cold-hearted people. So money and material rewards go in opposite directions. But then, you know, economists never like things simple. And we started thinking, well, maybe there's another factor that we should consider. And that's ability, talent, skills. Okay? Now, that's in the head. Empty-headed, not so skilled, half, so-so, full-headed, full skills. Now, that tends to go the other way around because there's a private sector out there, and the private sector rewards skills. So if you pay low rewards, you get the low-skilled guy, then it increases, then it increases, okay? And that's what you get. These are all the possible applicants. You have every possible combination. Of course, you're aiming for that corner up there, right? <laughs> but your fear is to get the low-end corner, somebody with an empty head and an empty heart. <laughs> now, with low rewards, you only get one type. You get big-hearted people, because they do it for the goodness of society, but also not so skilled, because the rewards to skills in the private sector are much higher. As you move and pay them more, you start moving diagonally. You don't move horizontally anymore. You don't move vertically. You move diagonally. And that's where you end up with high material rewards. Who would you choose? Maybe you can't measure their heart, but you do know their grades. You know if they've taken physics in high school. You know their grade in biology, which kind of helps if you want to be a doctor. Which one would you choose if you're a panel selecting these people? Would you choose the guy at the bottom with the empty heart? The guy at the bottom with the big heart by empty head? Or the guy at the top, which has everything? Well, it's no surprise. That's what they chose. So who do you think now did better? The community poster and the career poster attracted people who had the same level of prosociality. They all cared a lot. But the career poster attracted people with more skills. And it is those people that reduced children malnourishment. And here we're talking rural Zambia. It's pretty low. I mean, they're pretty, pretty malnourished by 25%. That, I think, illustrates what it takes to use economic models and data 
data, data, data to test because all of these things we tested. We collected all the data on their motivation, on their skills, on their performance, on the children's health, and that's what we found. I'll go on talking with, uh, uh, with Kate now, but before I do that, I want to give you the definition of economics that economists use. Okay? It's uh, not much about imprinting things in your mind. That's what economics is. We study human behavior as a relationship between ends and scarce means. This was Lionel Robbins. He wrote way before all the environmental problems started, for which there are alternative uses. In the definition of economics, there is no mention of markets, no mention of selfishness, no rationality, no dislike of the state, not even maths. There's only two things, human behavior and scarce resources. And that's, in essence, what economics is about. I want to have a dialogue so Dan can ask me to interrupt, so I'll stop now. I'll take this because I got used to it. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we're now into the impro section of the evening. Um, Kate, do you want to sort of respond, comment yeah. on that? That was fantastic, thank you. And of course that research is fabulous research. Um, it, I would say in relation to what I was presenting, it's the behavioural economic story where we're rewriting and repainting this portrait and understanding ourselves going in with data. I want to be really clear that I, I don't feel pitched against your work. I feel that I, like we both come out of development economics and actually when I studied development economics, for the first time things actually began to make sense. The first essay I was asked to write by Francis Stewart, who was my professor, what is human development and how should we measure it? It was as if values had suddenly come into the story. I think it's tragic that you only discover those if you study development economics because I've never been to a developed country. I, I mean, this isn't one, right? <laughs> Extraordinarily <laughs> unequal, running down the living world. This isn't developed. So there's something weird going on that there's the zone of what's called development economics is where there's so much sense going on. So I don't feel pitched against what you're presenting. That was fascinating research and it it connects with the, the study I was saying about the consumer, the citizen, the community. How we activate people changes how they show up and who shows up. Um, what we did do differently is that you stayed on and did the PhD. And some, I know you're not saying this, but sometimes people say to me, but if you stay on and do the PhD, then you get the insights. To which my response is, Econ 101 is the most important course. Because very few people stay on and study PhD. The most People in the world have Economics 101. Our politicians have Econ 101, the journalists, the business leaders. So it's the, as someone said, the first lick is the privileged one. It's the first models we're shown that matter so much. Yes, a lot has happened in economics in the last 25 years. Of course, I didn't just look at my old textbooks. I have been reading it. But if so much has happened, there's been feminist economics, complexity economics, institutional economics, ecological economics... One, why have they not managed to change Econ 101? Why do students still encounter the first diagram? Put up your hand if the first diagram you essentially earn was supply and demand. Why? Why is the circular flow diagram still the biggest picture we have? Why is the living world called an environmental externality? You know, call it an externality. They're even laughing. If you call the living world an externality, you already told me how important it isn't. You didn't say that word, but, but, but because, you're, because I agree with you on this space of behavioral economics. 
but I want to say that so, so much has changed, but the textbooks haven't changed. The syllabus hasn't changed in the way it should. And then I'll just come lastly to the Robin's definition. I don't agree with that definition. Um, first of all, he says it's a science of human behavior. That was written in the 1930s, and for only recently have we actually turned it into a science, collecting data on what people do. For decades, they just had this crazy model. Like, we say it's a science of human behavior, but we make all these, 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 these assumptions about rationality, which is the opposite of science. So it's only just catching up with work like yours to make it a science. But also it's this idea of, of, of competing ends and scarce means. I think, actually... Scarcity makes us scared. Scarcity makes us hoard. That's what makes us compete. I think economics is the study of abundance because life is the foundation of everything. And life is abundant and regenerative. And until we put the idea of the study of how to thrive as part of a regenerative system at the heart of what we define economics to be, I think it'll always fall short of the living world. So I, I want to I'd argue against that definition, but I want to say that the research you just showed is exactly the kind of thing I would have written in my book if I'd come across it, because it's exactly the way we need to reinvent our understanding of who we are. As you're such friends with the microphone. Wonderful. I think it's still on. It's still on? Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so two things. First, I'm glad that we met this year, not three years ago, because actually there is a group of people who are changing how economics is thought. Uh, these are core at UCL. Their first chapter is on inequality because they did a survey of what people care about and people said the main question that we want economics to address is inequality. Okay? Economists have always been studying inequality. I have the enormous privilege, actually, I'm a bit ashamed of it, I mean, not to be at the same height, of having the chair that was of uh, Sir Tony Atkinson who's been studying inequality and poverty all his life. So economists have been studying this, but they are just awful. In a way, the most selfish thing that economists do is not to come out and explain things as clearly as you have. There is not much of that going on, but CORE is addressing that issue. So CORECON, if you're lucky enough to do your first year at UCL, you will study economics on relevant matters. So what's the, it's first, spreading. what's the first diagram you see in this, in the UCL Inequality. Version? Excellent. Can I? Inequality. And the second thing, if, you, if I might, is uh, the scarcity issue. Uh, scarce does not mean that we have to panic. It's just a realization of the fact that there are 24 hours in a day. And so when we choose which job to work, we can only work one or two half time, right? because there are 24 hours in a day. So scarcity only tells you that everything has an alternative use. So when we decide what to do, we have to think of what the alternative use would be. And it is a very powerful concept to understand uh, pollution. Okay? We can grow as much as we want now. There'll be nothing left tomorrow because we are using everything now. There will be nothing left. So scarcity is in that sense in the definition, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we can yeah. But I won't pick up on the scarcity one. I, I completely appreciate what you're saying. We could say that the uh, atmospheric sink is scarce, that the ecosystems can be seen as scarce ultimately. But I think there's also a richness that, again, Robbins and economists of his day in the 30s, there was no understanding of Earth system science. There was no recognition of our deep dependence on the living world and on putting life at the heart of economics. Economics means household management. How do we manage this living planet? Just on the core, um, 
Yes, it's great that um, there are efforts going on to rewrite the curriculum, but I think there's one danger with the core that there's almost a, a too quick desire to say we've done it and we've got the new syllabus. Um, when I looked at it, there were 20 sections, and section number 17 was called the economics of the earth, and that just scared me, because one number is 17. I mean, we need to know that we live on a living planet from day one. This doesn't come in as an afterthought, like as an extra, extra class if you make it that far down. And two, the economics of the earth. No, 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 no. The earth is our home in which we create an economy. So I think there's some reframing still to be done. And I'm going to say one more thing. I was at the, um, the, thinking of, you know, the Festival of New Economic Thinking held in Edinburgh, organized by the student movement, just before INET in Edinburgh uh, last month. And from everything I saw, what the students were talking about and discussing the ideas were way more radical and exciting than what was going on in INET. There's a danger that uh, last century's economy, sorry, the Institute of New Economic Thinking, they are not inviting in the most exciting ideas. There's a danger that we represent old ideas there. Not at all. I'm not at all saying that's what you're doing. But I'm just using, talking about core. I'm talking about the institutional attempt to rewrite economics. There's a too quick movement to say, we've done it and we're here now. It needs to open up and it needs to embrace a lot more of what the students are coming up with themselves. It's a beautiful example of scarcity because had CORE put the earth in chapter 1 and inequality in chapter 17, we would be complaining all the same. Yeah, I Something wouldn't either has those to... till 17. <laughs> I put them both in the donut and they're right there from the beginning. <laughs> no, but I just want to make one last point, which is maths. It seems like um, kind of a nerdy thing to do that economists use maths because they want to keep everybody out. Economists don't use maths because we're smart. This comes from somebody much smarter than me. It's because we are too stupid. Maths doesn't lie. It's impossible. You can have all the radical ideas that you want. If you try to put them in a mathematical model and they don't work, they just don't work. Okay? And that's what happened with the ability and the good heart of the nurses. In theory, we started thinking the good heart is going to prevail. Of course the good heart is better. But in practice, once you start doing the maths, it turns out that it's not quite the same. So I think it's important. I think it's important to be rigorous and to have theory and data. But I'm an economist, I said it. Okay. Before you come back, I'm, I'm going to have to actually ask for a vote on this. We've got two fantastic women getting... Don't vote a... between us. Don't vote between no, us. No, no, no. No, no, no. Such no. a male that's, thing to that's do. That's not the vote I'm going to ask for. I've thought about it. We have 15 minutes left. Do you want to just listen to these two slug it out no, for no, another 15 minutes, or do you want to do Q&A? The trouble with Q&A is um, my male colleagues often ask very long, uh, well, they make very long statements disguised as questions, um, <laughs> and it could be actually a bit boring. However, I want to just check. People who want to, these two to carry on, please raise your hand. People who want to go to Q&A... Please raise your hand. I think Q&A's win it. All right. I just wanted a little bit of democracy there. Is that okay? Acceptable? What can Please you say, right? Please keep your questions very short. Yeah, no speeches. We will interrupt you. Okay. So I'm going to... Can I have that one? Just one. So I'm going to point and I'm going to take the first question from a non-male person over here. So this is, this is the first economics lecture I've ever been to, and so I don't know, are they all as good as this? Yeah, they're all <laughs> as pretty good. good. 
Um, I just wondered, um, you spoke about some of the traditional economic models and you said that those had, the economists had put caveats against them which, you know, fell by the wayside. I just wondered, with your great model, does it come with any caveats? Can we take... What can we a take, smart question from your first economics lecture. Can we take two or three? Yeah, because we've got a big crowd. Okay, yep, gentleman in the front there. Hi, good evening, Kate. Thank you very much for your uh, presentation. My name is Gary Shimzinga. Um, so one of the things we learn pretty early on in economics is the simpler the model, the more powerful it is, because the more... Sorry, where are you? I can't see... Oh, you're there. Sorry, Hi. there you are. Sorry. I so one of the things we learn pretty early on in, e in economics is the simpler the model, the more powerful it is, because you can apply it and you can actually uh, use some maths to reach conclusions. Um, what would you say to some that would say perhaps your model is wonderful, but perhaps too complex for it to be useful? Brilliant. Okay. Can I answer those two because they're so connected? No? One more. Boss? One Go more. On, then. You're still treating me as a boss. This is so sweet. I'm always a boss. Um, one to boss, have always One at the back there. Thanks. And then, then you can answer, okay? <laughs> okay. So, um, unfortunately, I did my you know, Econ 101 at the LSE, um, and I was. <laughs> I'd say it was very, you know, typical, exactly what you're talking about, supply and demand. And um, so I'm now doing a master's in development, and I'm really glad to be getting out of this um, like sort of rigorous system. But I'm wondering, what are the policy implications, or how can you make uh, this donut economic practical in the world today? Okay, that's definitely one you have to answer now. <laughs> Take it away. Kate, do you want me to go first? Okay, yeah, sure. So the question about caveats, brilliant question, um, and it really connects to... Gary's question. Are you Gary? Yes. Hello. We met on Twitter earlier. Okay. Um, so, yes, it does everything. Yes, it does have caveats. And, yes, uh, there is a power to a simple model. But, it, you know, Einstein, I'm sure he said, make all models as simple as they can be and no simpler. And I suppose I'm saying we know more now about the 21st century. The 20th century economists did not see planetary boundaries. They did not understand the Earth system on which we depend. They did not imagine... We could be so big in our impacts that we could actually run down the world that sustains us. So when the, as Keynes said, right, when the facts change, I change my mind, and I should probably change my diagrams too. My favorite quote that always keeps me on track on this is from a statistician called George Box. He said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> so everything I've shown you, the old and the new, it's all wrong. There's no such thing as the correct model, the true model, the, the right one. They're all wrong. The question to always ask yourself when anybody shows you any model is, is it useful? Is it useful given my values? Is it useful given the context I believe, the reality of the world? Is it useful given the goals that I believe we should now be pursuing? So I propose some new wrong models, but I believe they're far more useful than the old ones because I believe they reflect the context. I believe that they reflect our shared values of ecological integrity and social justice. And I believe that will give us a far better chance of reaching that goal. But we should, they will need to be redrawn, right? And something else will keep happening in the world. And I, I suggest up those pictures as, a, as a, my first attempt. I see writing a book as, as like throwing out a marker along the way. And I often invite people to help redraw the image and, and keep it moving forward. So this has to be a moving narrative. Um, just the, on the, the comment from the lady on, on development, and there seems to be a theme here, right? We both found more sense in development, you're finding more sense in development. This is a tragedy. Why is it that it's development economics that makes sense where you find values and inequality and you might be lucky and learn something about the living world, but you might not. 
and not in just economics. Why should all the people who are bringing these issues to the fore be in development economics, but economics is somewhere else? My worry about all these different kinds of economics is that, you know, he can be the institutional economist and the complexity economist, and she's the feminist economist, and I'm the behavioral economist, and you're the, you know, um, ecological economist, and we all go to different journals, all write for different journals, write different blogs, have different posts in universities, go to different conferences, and never meet. We need to bring these different kinds together and create a new economics that will dislodge the very dominant economic mindset that still holds in so many universities. Lastly, I'm to be practical. What could governments or politicians or companies practically do? Okay, we need an economy that works with and within the cycles of the living world. So we need to put an end to landfill. We sh our children will say, you know, our grandchildren, did you really use a plastic cup once and bury it in the ground? What were you thinking? It's crazy. It was a valuable fossil fuel. We should be using it again and again. So put in place regulations, requirements to create an open source ecosystem of material use so that every actor is financially incentivized and regulated to require to be part of that, that of what it is to use the materials of the world. How do we bring about a distributive economy? I'm not into trying to crush the old economy that's highly concentrated because I don't think you'll win there. What we need to do is build up new business models. And we've got them, community interest companies, B Corp, employee-owned companies, cooperatives. The, I believe the new economy already exists. It's bubbling up everywhere internationally. It already exists around us and it usually comes from people who have the initiative, whether as a CEO or a community member, to say, I'm going to transform, I'm going to run this company differently. But we need, again, regulations in place that actually enable that to happen. So it's everywhere all around us. You can probably see it happening. It's in community currencies. It's in the open source movement. It's in creative commons licensing. Creative, distributive, and regenerative economies are bubbling up all around us. And the exciting thing is we can all be part of it. One piece of good news for a change. Uh, development economics in the last 20 years has moved firmly into the mainstream of economics. 20 years ago, I was writing my PhD, and my advisors were telling me, you're insane. You don't want to write on development economics. That's a niche. You have to write on trade or labor or public. What are you doing wasting your talent in development? And I said, well, that's what I care about. That's what I'm going to write. There's going to be a massive revolution. Development economics has become the most rigorous data field in economics. So all these experiments like the one I run have started in development. So I think maybe the movement has begun. Development economics is not in the corner. On this we can agree. Can I show you something that oh, uh, okay. we won't agree? <laughs> Models. Very quickly. That's the tube, yeah? Mm -hmm. You know the tube doesn't look like that at all, huh? But it's the useful. tube looks like that. This is what models are. They make simplifying assumptions that allow you to get from A to B. If you're traveling underground, you really don't care how bendy the northern line is. It really doesn't matter. But wait, I show you what the big, big problem is with economics and economists that often that's the type of assumptions that they make. Now, if you simplify by removing the names of the stations, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> so to judge a model, a simplifying model, that does this instead of that is fantastic. If you're silly to do this, that's not a good model. I'll leave it there. To me, this is the circular flow diagram without the living world. There you go. 
okay. is keeping is keeping an essential bit. Uh, okay, uh, who, the runner with the mic. Um, okay, you're standing next to someone. Hi, apologies if this is too much of a supply and demand question, but in where terms of our, Where are you? Up here. Oh, there. Okay. In terms of our relation to materials, where do you think the balance lies between changing the mindset of consumers through education or through doomsday scenarios? Uh, and how much of the... Where's the balance between that and uh, encouraging producers to come up with new modes of production, new more... Uh, cyclical, or sorry, circular uh, methods of production. Okay. Do you want to answer first and answer? Should we take a couple more? Okay. Uh, This is probably going to have to be the last round, so take two or three more. Okay. Uh, I'm going to randomly choose you in a hat, because I can describe you. (laughs) Always wear a hat to meet. Always wear a hat in these meetings, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. So so, um, it seems to me that this is uh, uh, about liberty, um, so um, this is the liberty to spend the wealth that we generate in the way that we see fit um, as individuals versus having an elite dictating um, and oftentimes subjective morality. Um, e- economists describe an amoral system, and that, I presume that's why the earth is an externality. Um, but for, for tragedy of the common situations, it's, it's clearly right to apply morality and intervene. But to take it further... You're, uh, and, you're getting to a question, right? And reduce liberty. This is, the, this is the question. To take it further and reduce liberty ever more, you surely need to show how centralizing wealth redistribution um, is more efficient than the competitive market. Okay. So it's, it's, it's an ethical question, and I'd, li- I'd like Kate to, um, to speak to that, please. Okay. Thank you. Uh, person up there, um, lady on the uh, end of the row, that's right, looking pleased, that one. Kate, you've talked about influencing policymakers and, and students of economics who might become policymakers and activists, but um, I actually run a CIC. I study development economics. I've since gone on to work in business and human rights. And how can you get your message through to the business community as well and to others, governments? Okay. Um, one more, and then I think, okay, there's somebody just near you on the road there. And then, and then we go to that second stage where you basically have to buy a book to get a question in, okay? <laughs> Sorry, that's how it works. All right, go. Thanks so much for the talk. Um, something that I didn't hear quite a lot from your presentation, Kate, um, is population and population size. And at the same time, your narrative seems very positive. But to follow on from your like, nature analogy, what if we're the parasite? What if we're the growth in the bigger universal picture? Dear. Okay, I think we're going to... I'm really sorry, guys. Um, uh, we're going to have to stop there. Responses, wrap-ups, and then... Do you want to take some of them? Mobbing of the speakers. She's chipping afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll start with the population question. So often when I present the donut diagram, the first thing I do with a group of students or whoever I'm working on it with, I say, what are the key determinants as to whether or not humanity can get into this space? And I say, I want you to come up with answers so big that they're just one word long. Um, and population is one of the first ones to come up, and if it doesn't come up, I'll bring it up, because it's incredibly important, right? We're 7 billion now. Can we meet the needs of all? Can we get everybody out of that hole in the middle within the means of the planet? It's already one heck of a challenge, but we're going to be at least 10 billion, so the challenge is growing. Now, if we were 20 billion, I'm beginning to find this really hard to, to argue that I think we can do it. So, of course, the size of the human population matters fundamentally. We want everybody currently living in poverty to not have that deprivation in their life. 
What makes the difference in terms of whether or not we can have that population in there is technology governance, uh, the aspiration of what's seen as a good life, the amount of time we have, luck, I think, is going to be a big determinant as well. The scale of inequality, so there's many factors. The good news on population and why it's not the one that keeps me awake at night is because population is one of nature's S-curves, right? People talk about the population explosion. It's the wrong word. Explosions are exponential. Population has actually been slowing in its growth rate ever since the early 1970s. And for the first time in human history, it's not been due to war or famine. It's been due to success. It's been due to people, women particularly, choosing to have fewer children because of investment in child health, girls' education, women's empowerments, women's reproductive rights. So it's actually, think about the Donut Social Foundation, getting health, education, food, nutrition, women's rights to everybody in the world itself is a measure that slows the population growth rate. So there's still a lot of play in terms of whether we're going to be 9, 11, or 15 billion. That matters, that we invest more and faster. But it's not the one that keeps me awake at night because it's the drive for unending GDP growth, which is still exponential. Um, on the message to business, where's the lady who asked that? Gone? She's there, yeah. Oh, yeah, so I have great fun with business. Um, <laughs> But no, but seriously, because I do, I've do, been doing quite a lot of work with companies that say, how could we be part of this? And I do with them a session that I call corporate psychotherapy, you know, because <laughs> people go to psychotherapy and say, I have, the, I have awful people in my family and I need you to help me deal with them. And, and the more they go into psychotherapy, they, they come out saying, oh, it's, it's not them, it's me I need to work on. <laughs> and I think that's where companies get to, because um, whether or not companies are part of this new way of thinking can be listened to in the way they... Speak. I, I hear a huge dra psychological drama between two very different questions that are being asked. The people who have light dancing in their eyes, who are urban designers, product designers, social enterprise leaders, um, community leaders, politicians, m many of people. Caroline Lucas, there's someone snigger when I say politician, so I'm going to say Caroline Lucas. The question that all of these people are asking boils down to one clear thing. It's a 21st century generative mindset. How can we generate more benefits in the way that we do this? What else could we do to give back to the living world? How else could we contribute to the community in the way we run this enterprise, in the way we design this city? It's a generative question. But so often when these people want to get their projects financed, they go to 20th century finance, which still asks one question. How much financial value can I extract from this? Actually, it asks two. Then it asks, where can I hide it? But... <laughs> But it's a psychological drama between those two mindsets. And at the heart of it is the question of how a company is designed. What is the company's purpose? Is it to be the largest player in my sector or is it to have a living purpose? Like the purpose of Fresh Life Toilets is a safe and prosperous Kenya. The purpose of the open source vehicle is democratizing mobility, a purpose far bigger than yourself. How are you governed? What are the metrics that your employees turn up and have to report on every week? How are you networked with your suppliers, your community, your customers, your competitors? How and then how? How are you owned? Are you owned by the shareholder market? Or are you owned by employees or by crowdsourcing or privately? Because that tells us how you're financed and the question that finance brings. Is it short-term maximum returns or is it long-term generative finance? So com companies need to look inside themselves at their very structure. And if, if that sounds interesting, there's a book by Marjorie Kelly called Owning Our Future, from which I got those purpose, governance, networks, ownership, and finance. And it transformed the way I think about and talk to companies. 
I will be quick, Duncan. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Circular economy, where's it going to come from? Where's this transformation going to come from? I think leadership is everywhere. Um, I don't think we can expect consumers to do the right thing because often the right thing isn't even on sale and it costs three times as much to go somewhere by train as by plane and it's crazy. I think we need regulation to bring about uh, the circular economy particularly. If you look at companies, they lobby like crazy to stop a certain kind of plastic being regulated and then once it's done, they just get on with it and innovate. And we see that time and again. When government brings in a regulation, the lobbyists stop the creatives get to work and they actually start to make it happen. So I want to see brave governments. I'm with Mariana Mazzucato in terms of visionary state that actually has a project for the future and invests in making it happen. On the question on liberty, I haven't got the whole question. I don't want to make up a bad answer. But our liberty to use our money as we see fit, I want to go with steady there, as we see fit while respecting the cycles of the living world and respecting the rights of others. Maybe that's a longer question later. Thank you. Oh, yeah, just to one quick point on redistribution, because this has come up a lot. Um, redistributive policies, given the current conditions, are very tricky because there are very few very powerful actors. And rich money, rich people with a lot of money, don't like to give it away. So you can try and tax them. They hide them into tax havens. There are economists who estimate the amount of tax havens. They're enormous. What we need to do is a lot more effective is to give equality of opportunity to everybody. It's only when everybody will have equality of opportunity that it doesn't matter which family you're born in, you're equally likely to become an entrepreneur, to build toilets in Kenya, to do anything. Nowadays, by the age of six months, there is already a massive difference in the development of the brain of a child born in a high socioeconomic status family versus a low socioeconomic status family. As long as we have these differences, no amount of trying to chase after the Amazon and the Googles of the world is going to make any difference because these are always going to run away and inequality is going to beget more inequality. Okay, so I think we, I'll, I'll see if we can get them back for round two at some point, okay, because <laughs> I think that I'd feel very frustrated. Um, a few quick thank yous before you all get up. Huge thank you to Deepa Patel, who's clearly got a future in event organization, so thank you for that. Um, massive thanks to Oriana Bandera. Um, it must have been so hard to stay quiet that much, so thank you for that. Um, obviously, a huge thank you to Kate, who has just blown everybody away, I think. And do come and chat to her, buy her books. We'll be up out the back at the end of the day. Thank you for coming, everybody.